Would you open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3? And we'll be reading verses 1 through 11 together. Finally, my brothers, I'll say finally, my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And this finally actually um, is, Paul is not saying finally as in I'm closing the letter because he continues and he doesn't close the letter until chapter 4. And it's not actually until chapter 4 when he says uh, finally in verse 8 that he's really closing the letter. This finally actually means um, for the rest of my letter. It actually means for the rest. So for the rest of the letter, Paul is telling us that he will be rejoicing in the Lord. Finally, my sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are, uh, who are the circumcision we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain to the righteousness from the dead or somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, this is such a beautiful passage that Paul writes to us and I pray now that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us as we uh, talk about verse 1. Lord that your uh, word uh, would set us free if we'll choose to obey it. Lord we thank you so much for it and just come and be with us now. Fill our room, our sanctuary with your sweet presence and I pray that our hearts would receive from you Lord all that you have for us. In Jesus name, Amen. For our time together this morning, I'm just going to focus on verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. And the reason Paul says it's no trouble for me to, to, for, for me to write the same things to you again is that Paul realizes that he uses the word joy and the word rejoicing over 16 times in these four short um, chapters but he says it's no trouble because I want to keep saying it to you that I will rejoice in the Lord 
Paul loves the Philippians, this precious little church, and they uh, love him. There was something so deep and so special about their love relationship that in the situation that he is as a prisoner, he's basically writing to the Philippians. One of the reasons he writes to the Philippians is he's concerned with their sorrow. And that's why he says, I'm rejoicing. I don't want you to be sad for me. There are other things that he's concerned about. He's concerned about their unity. He's concerned about their faithfulness. But from a relational viewpoint, his deep concern is that these people who love him so much would be sad because he is a prisoner. Remember that he's writing this book to them as he's a prisoner in Rome. They are sad because of his circumstances. They are sad because he is deprived of comforts. They're sad because he's not with them. They are sad because Paul could lose his very life. Paul could be sad because Timothy and Epaphrodites, his two Christian friends, are leaving him to go visit the Philippian people, and he will be alone. He will be without Christian fellowship. So, of course, Paul could be sad, but yet he writes to them saying, in effect, look, I rejoice, so I don't want you to do any less. Remember from um, Acts chapter 16 that the Philippian church was born in joy. And just to get a a perspective of why Paul continually tells them over and over again, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. He, you know, he's saying to them, remember, our church was born out of joy. So if you will quickly just go back with me to Acts 16. I know we've read um, Acts 16 before, but it won't hurt us to review it because this church was indeed born out of uh, very dire circumstances, but it was born in joy. Would you look at Acts 16? And let's, let's start with um, verse 13. We'll find out about Lydia. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city, and that was the, um, the city of Philippi, to the river, Paul starting a church there, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When you have unsaved loved ones, just pray, God, open their hearts to hear your message of salvation. God, open their hearts to receive the truth of your word. And that's what the Lord did for Lydia. And she responded, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, and this is probably the very next um, Sabbath day, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And here's one Bible commentary on just verses 22 through 24. Now you've got to understand the issue here, meaning these verses. They had just been flayed open by a bundle of rods in the hands of experts that left their back a pulp that often caused intense hemorrhaging, often caused injuries to organs, often smashed vertebrae, crushed ribs, and could cause death. So these aching, bleeding, limping men are then taken in, thrown into a deep, dark cell in the inner dungeon, and then they were put in stocks. Not the kind of stocks that we think of. We think of the English that you drip with your hands through, you know, and you, sort of, you, you stick your feet through and you stick your head through and you're kind of in a sitting position. The stocks that the Romans used had a series of holes extending further out. Depending on the size of the individual, they stretched the legs to the farthest possible extremity and then locked them in those holes. And then they stretched the arms to the same extremity and locked them there. And in that condition, they were placed in that inner dungeon, aching, bleeding, sitting in a dark cell, cramping in ways that we couldn't even imagine, along with the filth of the cell, the rats, in their own excrement, whatever it was, that was the condition. And why? Because men had lost their money when they lost their demon-possessed girl. But at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were rejoicing. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. And I love this because when we choose to rejoice, God shows up. And I don't know if he'll show up in, in a miraculous way like this, but I can guarantee you this, he will show up in a way that you need. When you choose to rejoice, God will show up. Oh, oh great, Shelly, that's good, thanks. <laughs> The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm himself. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushing in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. 
So this church, this Philippian church, was born in joy. Is it any wonder that Paul wants to write back to them to say, now look, our church started in joy, and I want you to know that I'm going to finish in joy, and I want you to finish in joy as well. Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. Paul mentions it, as I said, at least 16 times. He uses the word either joy or rejoice in these four chapters. He also mentions Christ 50 times. And that is because his joy is found in Christ, and so is our joy. We live in a somewhat sad world, a world that knows despair, depression, unfulfillment, dissatisfaction, and a longing for things that can never come to pass. It's kind of a sad reality with even a sadder future because we have a world of, of people that are filled with sadness and no hope that anything will ever change. The long years of life can inevitably become long years of sorrow, punctuated by moments of happiness, but psychologists tell us that happy moments become less and less frequent as aging takes place. And that's probably why the highest percentage rate of suicide is among those who are over 65. And just last week, a lady in our church called Gary and she said, please pray for me and my family. My 95-year-old father committed suicide. He was in a nursing home. He was in a wheelchair. And there was a, a deck that uh, went out to a lake. And he took his wheelchair and rolled himself out onto the, the deck of the lake and just rolled himself in. He didn't know the Lord as his personal Lord and Savior. And the happy moments the moments that the world looks for, like a happy moment, they had become less and less. And, and it's true, we think, you know, we think of suicide as something that would hit a younger generation. Um, but it comes to those who are older because they've lived longer and they know the sadness of life. And before I go on, I don't want to be um, remiss in not praying for... Um, Pastor Janney, who I'm, I hope I'm saying his, his uh, last name right, he's the pastor of Percival Baptist Church, and um, we heard that yesterday he was severely stabbed um, by someone. He was helicoptered to Fairfax Hospital, where he is now in stable condition, so we can thank the Lord for that, but I'd just like to stop and take a moment to pray for him and his family. Uh, Lord, we pray for Pastor Janney that you would continue to heal his wound and that you would just bring complete healing to his body. We thank you that even though the uh, stabbing was severe, that you have kept him in stable condition. We just thank you for his life, Lord, that um, you did save his life and we pray that you would just continue your healing process upon him, that you would be with the family uh, during this time comfort them, just wrap your loving arms around them and help them to remember that no matter what, Lord, you are always with them. And help them today, Lord, just give them the opportunity today to rejoice in you, knowing that you are still a good God. Please watch over them and take care of them, Lord. We lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Men do talk about happiness. Happiness is a feeling of satisfaction, and I know we've, we've defined the difference between joy and happiness before, but happiness is a feeling of satisfaction based upon some present circumstance. 
Happiness is related to happenings or happenstance, which is a word that basically conveys the idea of change. So it may happen or it may not happen. And that's the best that men can do. On the other hand, praise God, God in his word talks about joy. Joy is a deep down confidence that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and that all is well. Not that your circumstance is well, but that because he is sovereign and because he is in control, all is well. And that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the problem, he is still in control. Joy to be understood in a biblical sense comes to us because of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. My favorite definition of joy is actually from a song that I learned um, when I was a little girl in children's church, and the words are, joy is the flag that flies on the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Isn't that cute? Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Want me to sing it for you? <laughs> Want to learn it? It's really cute. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. When the king is there, when the king is there, when the king is in residence there. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Isn't that cute? Yeah. And I do believe that only Christians know true and lasting joy. So if, the, if God is the king of your heart today, then just fly the flag of joy. This past week, I was listening to a sermon by Pastor John MacArthur, and it was a sermon from 1988. So this is a sermon that's 28 years old, but I, I knew that the, the truth that he was giving was timeless, and he was talking about joy, and he, he said, I have a, a theology of joy. And so I wrote down uh, this long sentence that he had on the theology of joy, um, so let me read it to you now. The theology of joy is, it is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the scripture, being mixed with trials and set their hope and their heart on future glory. I loved that, just his theology of joy. I love that definition so much that what I wanted to do this morning was actually... Um, give it to you in six parts because it's actually six sentences so we'll just take one sentence at a time so the theology of joy and i and the clicker was supposed to be up here okay so number one it should say the theology of joy oh can you see that no can't there we go that's that was better So you can put, if, um, if you're taking notes, the theology of joy, number one, it is a gift from God. Psalm 4, 7 and 8, and then and maybe you can write down the scripture right under it. Psalm 4, 7 and 8 says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart, for thou alone, O Lord, dost make me dwell in safety. So the psalmist is saying, 
You, God, give me gladness. You give me joy because of my secure relationship with you. Psalm 1611 also goes with number one. It says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. This is telling us that God is the source of our joy. So we begin our theology of joy by joy is a gift from God. So let's add to that number two. Joy is a gift from God. And then it's to those who believe the gospel. To those who believe the gospel. Luke 2.8. Remember God sent the angels to announce Jesus' birth? And this is what the angels said in, in Luke 2.8. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, which is the gospel, of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is the gospel, it is the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that brings us joy. The gospel brings us joy to our human heart. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ came to proclaim a gospel that would give men joy. Not just save us, but give us joy. So joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel. And let's add to that sentence number three. It is being produced in us by the Holy Spirit. Joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17 goes along with this, with um, number three. Romans 14, 17 says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I love that verse, Romans 14, 17. And Galatians 5, 22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So joy is a gift from God to those who believe being produced in them by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings to the heart righteousness, peace, and joy. And let's add sentence number four. True joy is a gift from God that comes to those who believe the gospel, being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as the believer receives and obeys the word. As they receive and obey the scripture. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, When your words came, I ate them, for they were my joy and my heart's delight. The word of God was Jeremiah's joy. 1 John 1, 4 says, These things I write unto you that your joy may be full. When we receive God's word, when we apply God's word, when we obey God's word, we experience full joy. And it really does work. When you read God's word, when you apply God's word, when you obey God's word, the Lord, no matter how much it hurts, you might not want to obey God's word, but when you do, God gives you joy. So let's add to that. True joy is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the word mixed with trials. 
true joy is mixed with trials. That should be number five. Being mixed with trials. This is a very, very important element because we will never experience the reality of true joy unless it is in contrast to trials. Joy, in a very real sense, is only known by its contrast, by sadness, sorrow, and difficulty. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I think that sums up a lot of a lot of uh, the theology of joy because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the tribulation, we have the word, and we have the joy. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In other words, you're going through sorrowful, sorrowful circumstances, but you choose to rejoice. Remember the words of James in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So let, let's, we, we have five so far, far. Let's read them. The theology of joy. And let's just read them, you know, as it would be a sentence. It is a gift from God to those who believe the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the scriptures, being mixed with trials and our last one, and set their hope on future glory. That should be number six, and set their hope on future glory. Do we have number six? There we go. And set their hope and heart on future glory. Remember Romans 12, 12. It says that we are to rejoice in hope. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes people have, that people have disappointed him, but he is still rejoicing. In chapter 2, he says, my plans have sort of, you know, disappointed me. I have to send Epaphroditus to you. I'm going to send Timothy to you. I'm going to be all alone, but I am still rejoicing. In chapter 3, he says, I've lost all possessions, but I'm still rejoicing. In chapter 4, he says, I'm in very, very trying circumstances, but I'm still rejoicing. That's Paul's message all through Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. 1 Peter 1.8 says, And though you have not seen him, that is Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And Peter was writing to persecuted Christians, and he was telling them to be full of joy. 1 Peter 4.13 says, to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So the deeper the suffering, the more rejoicing that you should give. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice in exultation. That's 1 Peter 4.13. 
In other words, Peter was saying, endure with joy now because you know that joy is to come. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. God will do that for you. He will make you stand in his presence with great joy. That's the believer's joy. You can rejoice with joy inexpressible because your joy, let's read those all together, your joy is a gift from God to those who believe in the gospel being produced in them by the Holy Spirit as they receive and obey the scripture being mixed with trials and set their hope and their hearts on future glory. And then why at the end of verse 1? Let's go back to Philippians 3.1. Why does Paul say, Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say it to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Why does he say that rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for us? I think because rejoicing in the Lord keeps us heavenly minded instead of focusing on ourselves, which is putting confidence in the flesh. And that's what Paul was trying to get us not to do. Don't put any confidence in your flesh. Don't think that you can figure out um, how you can, in your own righteousness, be a better person or please the Lord or come to salvation. Um, don't even put any confidence in your flesh that you'd be able to figure out the problem, that you'd be able to fix your trial. You know, God doesn't say when you have a trial, figure out how to fix it. He only says when you have a trial, just rejoice in me and let me fix your problem. Rejoice in me and then let me fix your trial. And rejoicing in the Lord keeps us so heavenly minded that we're not focused on having confidence in the flesh. Paul wanted no confidence in the flesh. I think a popular religious um, philosophy of our culture today, I know you've heard this, the Lord helps those who help themselves. You know, that, that's not a scripture in the Bible, and many people want to say it. Well, the Lord helps those who help themselves. The Bible does not say that. It was also, a, it was also very popular in Paul's day, but it was just as wrong today as it was then. By the flesh, Paul meant the old nature that he had received at birth. The Bible has nothing good to say about the flesh, and yet most people today depend in, entirely on their flesh, on what they themselves can do to please God. Genesis 6.12 says the flesh only corrupts God's way on earth. John 6.63 says the flesh has nothing good in it, and Romans 7.18 says that it profits us nothing in our spiritual life, the flesh profits us nothing, so no wonder we should put no confidence in the flesh. Gary told me about a funny, um, uh, it wasn't him, but it was a, a lady that had gone to a pastor, a pastor friend of his, um, told him about it, so I wrote it down. She went to him and she said, Pastor, um, I, I think that getting to heaven is like rowing a boat. Um, the oar is... The or, one oar is faith, 
and the other or is works. And if you use them both, you get there. If you use only one, you'll only go around in circles because he had been talking about um, that we are saved by grace and Jesus' grace is the only thing that can save us. And she said, well, you need one or for faith and one or for works because if you only use one or, then you're going to go around in circles. And he said, there's only one thing wrong with your illustration, ma'am, and that's that nobody is going to heaven in a rowboat. <laughs> there is only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven, and that is the finished work of Christ on the cross. He already did it. And it is because of him and in his finished work that we can choose to rejoice. And remember, it is a choice. It is a command. Paul gives us that command in the Bible, rejoice, but Paul can't make us rejoice. And you can't make anyone else rejoice, and, and no one else can make you rejoice. You have to choose that I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. It's a choice um, to rejoice. And Paul wasn't preaching, you know, I thought about this. He wasn't preaching from an ivory tower. He had gone through it all. Every circumstance, every trial, rejection that Paul had been through, yet he chose to rejoice. And that's an opportunity that I wanted to um, give you this morning, um, ladies, because I, I think number six on this list is my favorite because I think in that number is the choice that you choose to set your hope in Jesus in, in the future glory. And I think that's where the, the choosing to rejoice comes in. So I wanted to give you a chance to rejoice today. Um, but before I give you that chance, we were in our um, leaders meeting last week and um, Carrie Holdcraft was reminding us all about when Jeremy Camps, you know, Jeremy Camp, the famous songwriter, Christian songwriter and um, singer, when his first wife died of cancer, they had only been married for a very short time, maybe just a couple of years, and she was in her early 20s, diagnosed with cancer, and she did pass away. And um, he was with her in the room when she died, and Jeremy's mom was with them, um, when his wife passed away, and she said, Jeremy, just rejoice in the Lord. Lift up your arms to heaven and rejoice in the Lord. And he said, I can't, Mom. I just can't. And she said, yes, you can. Just rejoice in the Lord. And there, you know, within minutes after his wife had uh, passed from this earth into uh, heaven to be with Jesus, he did lift up his hands and say, Lord, I just rejoice in you. I just rejoice in you. And he said it was amazing how God just met him right there. That it changed his whole perspective. Like, Lord, you are in control. You are sovereign. You do love me. You do care about me. You've not left me. You've not forsaken me. And even though this has happened and I hate this, and this isn't good, I'm going to miss my wife, I will choose to rejoice in you because you're a good God and you are sovereign. One of my very favorite gospel um, songs uh, just happened to be, be, be playing last night um, so I wrote down some of the words for you it says the God of the good times is still God of the bad times the God of the mountain is still God in the valley and the God of the day is still God of the night 